Book One, Sections Three through Five of King Cole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. King Cole by Upton Sinclair. Book One, The Domain of King Cole, Section Three. Hal Warner started to drag himself down the road, but was unable to make it. He got as far as a brooklet that came down the mountainside, from which he might drink without fear of typhoid. There he lay the whole day, fasting. Towards evening a thunderstorm came up, and he crawled under the shelter of a rock, which was no shelter at all. His single blanket was soon soaked through, and he passed a night almost as miserable as the previous one. He could not sleep, but he could think, and he thought about what had happened to him. Bill had said that a coal mine was not a football field, but it seemed to Hal that the net impress of the two was very much the same. He congratulated himself that his profession was not that of a union organizer. At dawn he dragged himself up, and continued his journey, weak from cold and unaccustomed lack of food. In the course of the day he reached a power station near the foot of the canyon. He did not have the price of a meal, and was afraid to beg. But in one of the group of buildings by the roadside was a store, and he entered and inquired concerning prunes, which were twenty-five cents a pound. The price was high, but so was the altitude, and, as Hal found in the course of time, they explained the one by the other, not explaining, however, why the altitude of the price was always greater than the altitude of the store. Over the counter he saw a sign, we buy scrip at ten percent discount. He had heard rumors of a state law forbidding payment of wages in scrip, but he asked no questions, and carried off his very light pound of prunes, and sat down by the roadside and munched them. Just beyond the power-house, down on the railroad track, stood a little cabin with a garden behind it. He made his way there, and found a one-legged old watchman, he asked permission to spend the night on the floor of the cabin, and seeing the old fellow look at his black eye, he explained, I tried to get a job at the mine, and they thought I was a union organizer. Well, said the man, I don't want no union organizers round here. But I'm not one, pleaded Hal. How do I know what you are? Maybe you're a company spy. All I want is a dry place to sleep, said Hal. "'Surely it won't be any harm for you to give me that.' "'I'm not so sure,' the other answered. "'However, you can spread your blanket in the corner. "'But don't you talk no union business to me.' Hal had no desire to talk. He rolled himself in his blanket, and slept like a man untroubled by either love or curiosity. In the morning the old fellow gave him a slice of cornbread and some young onions out of his garden, which had a more delicious taste than any breakfast that had ever been served him. When Hal thanked his host in parting, the latter remarked, "'All right, young fellow, there's one thing you can do to pay me, and that is, say nothing about it. When a man has gray hair on his head and only one leg, he might as well be drowned in the creek as lose his job.' Hal promised, and went his way. His bruises pained him less, and he was able to walk. There were ranch houses in sight. 
It was like coming back suddenly to America. End of section three. Section four. Hal had now before him a week's adventures as a hobo, a genuine hobo, with no ten-dollar bill inside his belt to take the reality out of his experiences. He took stock of his worldly goods, and wondered if he still looked like a dude. He recalled that he had a smile which had fascinated the ladies. Would it work in combination with a black eye? Having no other means of support, he tried it on susceptible-looking housewives, and found it so successful that he was tempted to doubt the wisdom of honest labor. He sang the Harrigan song no more, but instead the words of a hobo song he had once heard. Oh, what's the use of working when there's women in the land? The second day he made the acquaintance of two other gentlemen of the road, who sat by the railroad track toasting some bacon over a fire. They welcomed him, and after they had heard his story, adopted him into the fraternity and instructed him in its ways of life. Pretty soon he made the acquaintance of one who had been a miner, and was able to give him the information he needed before climbing another canyon. Dutch Mike was the name this person bore, for reasons he did not explain. He was a black-eyed and dangerous-looking rascal, and when the subject of mines and mining was broached, he opened up the floodgates of an amazing reservoir of profanity. He was through with that game. Hal or any other goddamn fool might have his job for the asking. It was only because there were so many natural-born goddamn fools in the world that the game could be kept going. Dutch Mike went on to relate dreadful tales of mine life, and to summon before him the ghosts of one pit-boss after another, consigning them to the fires of eternal perdition. "'I wanted to work while I was young,' said he, "'but now I'm cured and for good.' The world had come to seem to him a place especially constructed for the purpose of making him work, and every faculty he possessed was devoted to foiling this plot. Sitting by a campfire near the stream which ran down the valley, Hal had a merry time pointing out to Dutch Mike how he worked harder at dodging work than other men worked at working. The hobo did not seem to mind that, however. It was a matter of principle with him, and he was willing to make sacrifices for his convictions. Even when they had sent him to the workhouse, he had refused to work. He had been shut in a dungeon, and had nearly died on a diet of bread and water, rather than work. If everybody would do the same, he said, they would soon bust things. Hal took a fancy to this spontaneous revolutionist, and traveled with him for a couple of days, in the course of which he pumped him as to details of the life of a miner. Most of the companies used regular employment agencies, as the guard had mentioned, but the trouble was these agencies got something from your pay for a long time. The bosses were in cahoots with them. When Hal wondered if this were not against the law, "'Cut it out, Bo,' said his companion. "'When you've had a job for a while, you'll know that the law in a coal camp is what your boss tells you.' The hobo went on to register his conviction that when one man has the giving of jobs, and other men have to scramble for them, 
the law would never have much to say in the deal. Hal judged this a profound observation, and wished that it might be communicated to the professor of political economy at Harrigan. On the second night of his acquaintance with Dutch Mike, their jungle was raided by a constable with half a dozen deputies, for a determined effort was being made just then to drive vagrants from the neighborhood, or to get them to work in the mines. Hal's friend, who slept with one eye open, made a break in the darkness, and Hal followed him, getting under the guard of the raiders by a football trick. They left their food and blankets behind them, but Dutch Mike made light of this, and lifted a chicken from a roost to keep them cheerful through the night hours, and stole a change of underclothing off a clothesline the next day. Hal ate the chicken, and wore the underclothing, thus beginning his career in crime. Parting from Dutch Mike, he went back to Pedro. The hobo had told him that saloon-keepers nearly always had friends in the coal camps, and could help a fellow to a job. So Hal began inquiring, and the second one replied, yes, he would give him a letter to a man at North Valley, and if he got the job, the friend would deduct a dollar a month from his pay. Hal agreed, and set out upon another tramp up another canyon, upon the strength of a sandwich bummed from a ranch house at the entrance to the valley. At another stockaded gate of the General Fuel Company, he presented his letter, addressed to a person named O'Callahan, who turned out also to be a saloon-keeper. The guard did not even open the letter, but passed Hal in at sight of it, and he sought out his man and applied for work. The man said he would help him, but would have to deduct a dollar a month for himself, as well as a dollar for his friend in Pedro. Hal kicked at this, and they bartered back and forth. Finally, when Hal turned away and threatened to appeal directly to the super, the saloon-keeper compromised on a dollar and a half. "'You know mine work?' he asked. "'Brought up at it,' said Hal, made wise, now, in the ways of the world. "'Where did you work?' Hal named several mines, concerning which he had learned something from the hoboes. He was going by the name of Joe Smith, which he judged likely to be found on the payroll of any mine. He had more than a week's growth of beard to disguise him, and had picked up some profanity as well. The saloon-keeper took him to interview Mr. Alec Stone, pit-boss in Number 2 Mine, who inquired promptly, "'You know anything about mules?' "'I worked in a stable,' said Hal. "'I know about horses.' "'Well, mules is different,' said the man. "'One of my stable-men got the colic the other day, "'and I don't know if he'll ever be any good again.' "'Give me a chance,' said Hal. "'I'll manage them.' The boss looked him over. "'You look like a bright chap,' said he. "'I'll pay you forty-five a month, and if you make good, I'll make it fifty. "'All right, sir, when do I start in?' "'You can't start too quick to suit me. Where's your duds?' "'This is all I've got,' said Hal, pointing to the bundle of stolen underwear in his hand. "'Well, chuck it there in the corner,' said the man. Then suddenly he stopped and looked at Hal, frowning. "'You belong to any union?' "'Lord, no!' "'Did you ever belong to any union?' "'No, sir, never.' 
The man's gaze seemed to imply that Hal was lying, and that his secret soul was about to be read. "'You have to swear to that, you know, before you can work here.' "'All right,' said Hal. "'I'm willing.' "'I'll see you about it tomorrow, said the other. "'I ain't got the paper with me. "'By the way, what's your religion?' "'Seventh-day Adventist.' "'Holy Christ, what's that?' "'It don't hurt,' said Hal. "'I ain't supposed to work on Saturdays, but I do. "'Well, don't you go preaching it round here. "'We got our own preacher. "'You chip in fifty cents a month for him out of your wages. "'Come ahead now, and I'll take you down.' "'And so it was that Hal got his start in life. "'End of Section 4 Section 5 the mule is notoriously a profane and godless creature, a blind alley of nature, so to speak, a mistake of which she is ashamed, and which she does not permit to reproduce itself. The thirty mules under Hal's charge had been brought up in an environment calculated to foster the worst tendencies of their natures. He soon made the discovery that the colic of his predecessor, had been caused by a mule's hind foot in the stomach, and he realized that he must not let his mind wander for an instant if he were to avoid this dangerous disease. These mules lived their lives in the darkness of the earth's interior. Only when they fell sick were they taken up to see the sunlight and to roll about in green pastures. There was one of them called Dago Charlie, who had learned to chew tobacco, and to rummage in the pockets of the miners and their buddies. Not knowing how to spit out the juice, he would make himself ill, and then he would swear off from indulgence. But the drivers and the pit-boys knew his failing, and would tempt Dago Charlie until he fell from grace. Hal soon discovered this moral tragedy, and carried the pain of it in his soul as he went about his all-day drudgery. He went down the shaft with the first cage, which was very early in the morning. He fed and watered his charges, and helped to harness them. Then, when the last four hoofs had clattered away, he cleaned out the stalls and mended harness, and obeyed the orders of any person older than himself who happened to be about. Next to the mules, his torment was the trapper boys, and other youngsters with whom he came into contact. He was a newcomer, and so they hazed him. Moreover, he had an inferior job. There seemed to their minds to be something humiliating and comic about the task of tending mules. These urchins came from a score of nations of southern Europe and Asia. There were flat-faced Tartars, and swarthy Greeks, and shrewd-eyed little Japanese. They spoke a compromise language, consisting mainly of English curse-words and obscenities. The filthiness which their minds had spawned was incredible to one born and raised in the sunlight. They alleged obscenities of their mothers and their grandmothers, also of the Virgin Mary, the one mythological character they had heard of. Poor little creatures of the dark! their souls grimed and smutted even more quickly and irrevocably than their faces. Hal had been advised by his boss to inquire for board at Reminitsky's. He came up in the last car, at twilight, 
and was directed to a dimly lighted building of corrugated iron, whereupon inquiry he was met by a stout Russian, who told him he could be taken care of for twenty-seven dollars a month, this including a cot in a room with eight other single men. After deducting a dollar and a half a month for his saloon-keepers, fifty cents for the company clergyman, and a dollar for the company doctor, fifty cents a month for wash-house privileges, and fifty cents for a sick and accident benefit fund, he had fourteen dollars a month with which to clothe himself, to found a family, to provide himself with beer and tobacco, and to patronize the libraries and colleges endowed by the philanthropic owners of coal-mines. Supper was nearly over at Reminitsky's when he arrived. The floor looked like the scene of a cannibal picnic, and what food was left was cold. It was always to be this way with him, he found, and he had to make the best of it. The dining-room of this boarding-house, owned and managed by the G.F.C., brought to his mind the state prison, which he had once visited, with its rows of men sitting in silence, eating starch and grease out of tin plates. The plates here were of crockery, half an inch thick, but the starch and grease never failed. The formula of Reminitsky's cook seemed to be, when in doubt, add grease and boil it in. Even ravenous as Hal was after his long tramp and his labor below ground, he could hardly swallow this food. On Sundays, the only time he ate by daylight, the flies swarmed over everything, and he remembered having heard a physician say that an enlightened man should be more afraid of a fly than of a Bengal tiger. The boarding-house provided him with a cot and a supply of vermin, but with no blanket, which was a necessity in the mountain regions. So after supper he had to seek out his boss, and arrange to get credit at the company store. They were willing to give a certain amount of credit, he found, as this would enable the camp-marshal to keep him from straying. There was no law to hold a man for debt, but Hal knew by this time how much a camp-marshal cared for law. End of section 5